Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview acclaimed energy policy advisor Hal Harvey and award-winning New York Times reporter Justin Gillis about their new book, The Big Fix. The Big Fix is a short guide, right? Seven practical steps that everyday people can take to save our planet. And the reason why I'm thrilled to have Justin and Hal on specifically is because they have been at the forefront of climate activism, research, and journalism for years. They are quite literally the best in the business when it comes to, one, understanding the core problems, two, distilling that down into layman's terms, and then three, making practical recommendations that everyday people and people in power can make to affect change in the ways that we want. And so in the episode, Hal Justin and I will discuss what people have the power to influence legislative change that can actually make the changes that we want, how everyday people can insert themselves into these key political decisions. For example, how dozens of kids in Maryland are convincing the school board to update their school buses to electric school buses. And finally, some of the high priority ticket items that are on our to-do list that everyday people can start advocating for. Y'all, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with Hal and Justin. I have been such a fan of theirs for years. And so enough talking, without further ado, I am thrilled for you to hear this conversation with Hal Harvey and Justin Gillis, acclaimed climate activists and co-authors of The Big Fix. Justin and Hal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm very excited to dive into some of the practical offerings, recommendations that y'all write about in your upcoming book. So before we get there, let's just start with the basics, starting with Justin. Quick spark notes on who you are, and then we'll pass the torch to Hal. I spent 40 years in newspapers in a whole succession of beats covering governments and all sorts of topics. I ended my newspaper career as the lead writer on climate science for the New York Times. And that is how I met Hal. And uh, I started out covering science and got dragged into covering policy. And what do we do about this problem? So that's my background. I'm an engineer by training, studied mechanical and civil engineering many years ago, realized that the problems were not technical, but political. So moved in that direction. And I spent the last 30 years setting up a series of institutions, the Energy Foundation China, European Climate Foundation, and others around the globe to focus much more intensively on climate and energy policy. The book talks about seven practical areas that citizens can get involved in to effectively decarbonize the economy at scale. But how? please give me the spark notes on what the book is about and then we'll go from there. So climate change is a huge problem and it's intrinsically linked to our food systems, our mobility, our housing, the stuff we make, the stuff we eat. And unless you can decarbonize essentially every aspect of the economy, you're not going to solve climate change. We've lived for a couple of centuries now with the vast riches, which we didn't create, which was the stores of petroleum and coal and natural gas in the geology of our planet. That made every human being on this planet into a superpower. We are using vast amounts of energy to support this lifestyle. 
So the question then becomes, without sacrificing standards of living, indeed while enhancing standards of living, which we can get to in a minute, is it possible to swap out dirty fuels for clean? The problem is though, people skitter around with all these different ideas. They get infatuated with certain technologies or certain policies without trying to plaster them up against the challenges we face in the real world. The first time I actually got turned on to you, Hal, it was your TED Talk with John Dewar. And it was the first time that I heard someone break down the problem set into two areas, which is maybe oversimplifying, but these two umbrellas, the actual technical breakthroughs, then you have policy, right? How do you actually implement changes so that we can accomplish all the above seven? And on the policy side, I was surprised to hear how much power lied in the hands of such few people. Can we just talk a little bit about where exactly these decisions are made between going clean versus sticking with the tried and true over the last century? Roughly half the carbon in the economy goes through wires, electrical wires, or is used up in the electrical grid and through the natural gas system. So half the carbon goes on monopoly carriers. And because they're monopolies, they have to be regulated. Otherwise, they can charge you whatever they want. So the question then is, who are the people in charge of the grid? Who are the people in charge of the natural gas infrastructure? And the way we handle it in America is every single state has what's called a public utilities commission. They go in slightly different names in different cities or different states. And the public utility commission decides where your dollars go when you write your utility check at the end of every month. If you spend $80 on your utility bill, somebody is deciding, does that go into windmills or coal or natural gas or nuclear or whatever? So we took a hard look at who makes those decisions and what are the atmospheres in which they make those decisions. Public utilities commissioners are typically appointed by the governors in their home states. They have an average tenure of about three years. There's five commissioners typically per state. So that means there's about 250 people, it's actually fewer than that, who control half the carbon in the economy. And they have statutory requirements. They're supposed to help with human health. They're supposed to keep things affordable. They're supposed to make sure electricity is reliable. And they're supposed to clean it up over time. And some of them do a great job of it, and some of them do a miserable job of it. What the book says is if you want to be serious in this business, you need to spend a little time, not a lot of time, but a little time understanding how those decisions are made in your state. Because these public utilities commissions have hearings, and they are required by law to listen to you. They have to take into account public opinion. They're required to consider economics, and the cheapest forms of electricity today in the world are solar and wind. So that's a pretty nice tailwind. For that, they are susceptible to comments about human health. If you bring in a, if you have a mother, father, and you bring in an asthmatic kid, and you explain to the public utilities commissioners what hell it is when your kid can't breathe properly, you're going to have an emotional impact, and one hopes a logical impact as well. So the point of of this little soliloquy is to say, utilities are big. That's roughly half the carbon in the economy. There's a small set of people who have the keys to this machine. They turn it on and off. They decide where the money goes. And they have a process and a procedure that lets them decide or a venue in which they decide. Peter, there is a dark side here, as you might guess, which is that because this process of regulating electricity is political, there's an opportunity for all sorts of malign political influence. And 
There's a long history in this country of utilities, if not outright controlling these commissions, at least heavily influencing them. The utilities heavily influence who gets appointed. The utilities then influence the commissioners themselves. They've been caught taking people on fancy hunting trips and fancy travel and stuff like that. There have been cases where yeah, utilities have been caught supplying prostitutes to the to the public utility commissioners. In many states, the number one industry contributing money in state politics is the utility industry, who are trying to protect their monopoly, of course. The Ohio Speaker of the House of Representatives was arrested by the FBI one morning and charged with running a sort of $50 million influence peddling scheme where the money actually came from the state's util big utility to put through favorable legislation toward that utility, legislation that, by the way, benefited coal plants in addition to a couple of nuclear plants. And then in Illinois, uh, the Speaker of the House was just forced out. In fact, he was just arrested within the last few weeks and charged. He's now out of office. But again, an influence peddling scheme paid for by the utility. So when Howell says we need citizen voices, he desperately need people understanding who's making these decisions and going down and representing the public and representing the citizenry. And until that happens on a larger scale, we're not going to get these boards moving forward with clean energy in the way they should. Two questions here. Can you just help us understand how exactly are these commissioners appointed? I mean, as a citizen, do I have any opportunity to participate in that process. We have a whole episode in the book in Colorado, a bunch of mothers with sort of young babies on their hips are going down and talking to the Public Utilities Commission and supporting a clean energy plan. And I can tell you the commissioners were watching and listening intently. I also think numbers matter, right? So you as you as one person, you're one person, you're one vote. If you and a hundred of your friends go down, that's a whole different story. And if you get active in a group that bird dogs the Public Utilities Commission and you can turn out two or three hundred people at one of these meetings, it, it really does have an influence. With that said, as you might guess, these public utility commissions are creatures of the state government, of the state legislature, and they take direction, they take their overall direction from the state legislature. So the target here is not just influencing these boards, it's also influencing the state lawmakers and perhaps the governors, because in the places where we've seen states really move forward and make big progress on clean energy, it's because those public utility commissioners got marching orders, really explicit marching orders from uh, the state government. That's happened in California it's happening right now in, in Colorado. It's happening in New Mexico. It's happening in Massachusetts. So, you know, what's now a sort of 10 or 15 state battle needs to become a 50 state battle. That, that's what we need citizens to do is engage in every single state in making this case. When I advocate for these things, what is the output of the advocacy and what can the commission do with kind of this new North Star? In, in most states, the utility essentially gets paid a guaranteed rate of return for everything they build and put on the grid. So instead of that being an incentive to, to make a grid that's, that's highly efficient, it's really an incentive to build a lot of stuff. And so this is the constant cat and mouse game that the utilities are in with the, with the public utilities commissions, where the utilities want us to gold plate the grid and build everything they can and charge the ratepayers for it and earn their 10 or 12 or 14% guaranteed rate of return. 
It's just completely upside down, bizarre economics. And so what we're trying to influence when we go talk to the utility commissions, the clean energy community, is we're trying to influence those plans. That's essentially the struggle is what are they going to be allowed to build and then recover the money for? When you think about public utilities, you have to think about reliability and you have to think about efficiency and you have to think about the transformation to a clean grid, clean natural gas, clean heating system and so forth. And so what we do at Energy Innovation is detailed strategies, detailed analysis on exactly how to do that. And we show how to change the physical system, how to dispatch renewables, how to back them up or hook them together so they don't need backing up. So we show that the path is clear, is cost-effective, and creates an affordable, reliable, and clean grid. All of that is necessary, but not sufficient. So to your question about mobilizing people, if this is done well, and it's boiled down into a newspaper column or a short position paper, and it's backed up by a weighty appendix, a very careful done, carefully done analysis, then there's the armaments, the key forces you need the, the key information you need to prevail in the argument. And it's happened again and again. So I would call I would say the technical work is necessary but not sufficient. There's also a lot of work supported by philanthropies and carried out by environmental advocates for the poor, environmental justice groups, health groups that carry the public pressure in. So they say that a good argument requires logos and pathos, logic and feelings or heart. And so I love to see a public utilities hearing where somebody presents a sound strategy that's carefully done for a fast transition to renewables grid. And somebody else says, you have an obligation. This is the Public Utilities Commission. You have an obligation to help my kid breathe. You have an obligation to prevent climate change. Put them together and you can create an unstoppable force. What we're trying to do is get more people fired up and mobilized and making demands. And to some extent, the book is aimed at ordinary citizens, but it's also aimed at some of the groups out there that are already mobilized on climate, but I think sometimes don't know entirely what they ought to be fighting for. So it's very tricky, depending on what sector of the economy you're talking about, exactly where the levers are is complicated. Even groups that are already 350.org and groups like that are already turning out people marching in the street. Very often, they're, what they're doing is they're marching against fossil fuel projects, for example. That's all well and good, but we've got to figure out what we're for in addition to what we're against. And we've got to go and make a political case on what needs to happen in a positive direction. And so that is the intent of the book, is to point people toward those levers and where to pull them. That makes sense. So if we go to a different peg on this list, we talked a little about the grid. I know there's going to be more in the book. Can we just give or highlight another one of these areas and then practically as a citizen, like talk to me about what another one of these levers are. When you build a new building, you have choices to be made about how efficient the heating system is, whether the ducts are wrapped in fiberglass, whether you have low emissivity windows, whether you have different shading to keep the house from boiling in the summer, how good the insulation in the walls and ceiling are and so forth. Um, If you, make the right choices with this, the price of the house goes up by typically less than 2%, but your utility bill plummets by more than 80%. So it's a great trade-off. The problem is that people who design and build houses are never the people that live in them. And so that's called a split incentive. You need to have alignment. The way around this is something as prosaic and dull as a building code. 
We have building codes because houses used to burn down with regularity, and we discovered if you built them correctly, they quit burning down. We have all kinds of public standards, as I call them, in the world. When you drink water from your tap, you expect it to be clean. When you buy beef in the grocery shelves, you expect it not to be rotten, and so forth. And indeed, in the building sector, you expect your house will not fall down because it falls a building code. But the question is, which not everybody's answered, is can you use a building code to make sure that all new buildings are super clean, super efficient, super green? So because 80% savings are absolutely feasible and a heat pump can replace both your gas hot water heater and your gas home heater and your stove with an induction stove, there's now a technological pathway to do the right thing, but the incentives aren't lined up. The people who, again, design and build the buildings are never the people who pay the utility bills in those buildings. So some states have got these incredibly advanced building codes. And when they do, every building that's built is a great building. California is one of those states. California energy consumption has dropped by almost 80% because their building code that was passed from Jerry Brown is the youngest governor in California's history. So how does that happen? You need to find out who sets the building code. Is it the legislature or an agency? You need to do a little homework about what's the best code in the country and what is yours. Fortunately, there are nonprofit groups that have done this homework. So armed with us, go down to the building department and say, why don't you have an advanced code? Go to the city council. Go to the Most building codes are set state by state. So go to the state energy authority or the state legislature. But the point is, there's a whole sector that depends on getting this right. There's a clear pathway to getting it right. There's a clear decision maker that you can communicate with. They have obligations, like all public officials, to protect the public. And nobody even talks to them from the environmental and community, climate community, nobody. But it's that kind of precision intervention that's required if we're going to keep from absolute planet destroying climate change. Let's make sure every building we build is a great building. Let's use building codes to do it. Here's the proof it works. It's not complex. This is another of these secret levers that we write about in the book, Peter. Most people don't know that the local building codes are updated on a three-year cycle. So every three years, the local city council or county commission is taking a vote on which building code to put into effect. They've been doing that for many decades now. And so it's this kind of the power of human inertia is really powerful here. And I've sat in city council meetings as a reporter covering these things, and almost no one shows up when this stuff gets adopted. That's just a real mistake. And in this particular sector, what we're asking people to do is learn when you're, what cycle your local government is on. In most cases, by the way, this will be coming up again in 2024. So there will be another cycle of code adoption in 24. We just went through one and we're, we'll go through another one in 24. And we, we need all those local governments to get themselves up to date. Much of the problem out there is people are still operating on really out-of-date building codes. So you can go find a lot of towns in America where the building code is a 2009 version, and it just hasn't been updated since. And so this is yet again a sort of political target for citizens. How many people would it take marching down to Topeka City Hall and agitating to get this done? 50 people going to three meetings should probably get it done. It's just you need those 50 people to get together and understand or understand the stakes. You know, what I'm hearing here is it's pretty hard to get the words right. But fortunately, we have historical standard. So if California happens to be the pinnacle of where the words happen to be right, then there's groups that say, hey, this is the standard. Don't reinvent the wheel. Copy paste the language. There's a trick in California's building codes, which applies to almost every policy 
in the world, but rarely is used, which is it automatically gets tighter every three years. So what the state of California did when Jerry Brown was, again, the youngest governor in California's history, is they adopted a building code called Title 24. And every three years, scientists and economists sit down and say, what else could we do that's cost effective? They divide the state into 16 climate zones, and they ask and answer this question for each climate zone. So up in the Sierras, maybe it's time for triple glazed, low emissivity windows. Down in Death Valley or Palm Springs, maybe you want better roof overhangs for new construction so you don't get as much heat gain. And every three years, these technical officials go through this. And if anything pays for itself in energy savings in about seven years, they roll it into the code. So the consequence of this, and there's beautiful charts of the code getting stronger and stronger every year without going back to the legislature, without requiring a new governor to do it. It's built into the original law, continuous improvement. There's no reason we shouldn't have continuous improvement in automobile fuel efficiency. There's no reason we shouldn't have continued improvement in the carbon content of steel or the CO2 emissions of concrete. So the point here is set a public standard, represent the public interest, make it strong, give it some lead time so people can adapt to it, but put a mechanism in it so it gets stronger every couple of years. The biggest shortage in the energy space is political will. It's not technology. Some of the other arguments you hear out there is people go ask for things that are politically impossible, or at least in the United States, as politics are currently configured, are just impossible. There's a group, for example, called the Citizens Climate Lobby. It's a large group that's demanding a big tax on emissions, on CO2 emissions, and then they want the money given back to the public. And But people have been asking Congress for a, what's called a carbon tax for 35 years now with absolutely no progress and no sign that we're ever going to get that. What Howell has made his name doing, I think, is figuring out how to latch on to things that already exist, that we already do. We already have building codes. How can we make them better? We already have emission standards for cars. How can we make them better? So that's the difference is we're giving people a program here. It may feel incremental, right? If you're one of those 50 people going in down to Topeka asking for a better building code, you may well ask yourself, how much difference is this going to make like to saving the planet? But what I would argue is it's a practical program. Like it's something we can actually achieve and over time get, I think, big changes going and not spend another 30 years demanding things that are politically impossible. And I just think that's a big mistake that the climate movement has made, the environmental movement, and we've got to get beyond that and wrestle with the world of the practical here, if that makes sense. I think you tweeted about this, Justin, you might have as well, How, but the idea of clean energy is no longer a moral argument, right? We've benefit from Moore's law and cost advantages. But when you look at what's happening in Eastern Europe and Ukraine, you talked about what happens when you get hooked on other energy sources. By the time this drops, we don't know what the state of affairs will be. But what I think the broader point you made is that it's not just a plea for cost advantage or morality, but there is clear geopolitical advantages to trying to push forward the clean agenda. I just wanted to get both of your your comments on what the current state of affairs shows around the potential to really urge and push the people in power for the clean path forward. We are funding both sides of the war in Ukraine right now. That's insane. And it's tragic. 
And we prop up petro dictators in Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Iran, Russia. And we pay an awful cost in blood and treasure both to do that. And it defies common sense. It's it's an insult to our national security apparatus. Uh, And it's built on laziness. Why don't we have much more efficient vehicles and homes? Why don't we accelerate the switch to electric vehicles? Why are we still burning so much oil in this world? It doesn't take much will to overcome that with the technologies that are available today. It takes some will, however. It's a hell of a lot better than going to war, and it's a hell of a lot better than arming people who don't like us, which we've been doing for decades now. We've been, since 1973, enthralled to oil producers around the world, none of which are beacons of democracy, except maybe Norway. So it's time to square our shoulders and say enough. And the geopolitical question is right in front of us today. Just imagine the tragedy of the Ukraine being paid for by cars that aren't fuel efficient. We've doubled the power in cars in the last 20 years. Why? So you can get from one red light to the next light a tenth of a second faster. And at what horrible cost to the atmosphere and to society and now to democracy? The most sensitive price in the economy, of course, is the price of gasoline. It's the only price that's on two-foot-high letters beside every road in the country. And the American public is very sensitive to the price of gasoline. I would say to, to people, that price is a fiction. It does not include the environmental damage that we're doing by burning oil. It does not include the damage to democracy and the human rights that we're doing by burning oil and burning fossil fuels. The, these, the bulk of these fuels are controlled by bad actors. If you match up who owns the world's oil and match up which countries are really democratic, that overlap is not very large, actually. And we have just, and the American public has really been deaf to this argument, despite all the soldiers' blood spilled in the Middle East, despite the trillions of dollars we spent on wars that are essentially designed to keep the oil flowing. How have people responded? They only react to the price of gasoline. And these days when people are driving around ever larger SUVs, which by the way, you know, pedestrian and child deaths are way, way up because vehicles have gotten so much heavier. You can't even see a kid on a bicycle over the hood of some of these big pickups now. We're pleading with people, I guess, to wake up and realize the true cost of this fossil fuel dependency. And you can think about what you drive, where you live, whether you can do that a car at all. But also we need people to help us on the politics of cleaning up the vehicles and ultimately transitioning to vehicles that don't burn fuel at all. Before we get to the bookends, what I love what we've done here is give a few practical examples around how people, you know, individuals can affect rather large change in their local communities. There is not enough around what I think y'all have accomplished here, which is, hey, I'm a motivated individual. I care about our future. How can I feel like the work I'm doing is affecting change? When I swap my straw from plastic to metal, or when I buy a car, That's electric instead of fossil fuel powered. Yes, yes, that is a great step. But the things that I've heard here is, wow, I could really start moving the meter of this big grand old meter that we're fully carbonized to decarbonize. I can start helping tickle it back. I don't think this has been done yet. So my last question for both of you, which is how directionally accurate is this impression of mine? If a reader buys this book, What do you hope we learn and leave with after reading it? 
Okay, so the book is explicitly an appeal to people to realize that being a green consumer is not enough. It's good, it, we're for it, it's okay, but it simply is not enough. What we need you to do is we need you to be a green citizen. And at the bare minimum, that means incorporating this issue into how you vote. It means uh, for young people going to your grandparents and asking, Grandma, how are you going to vote in the next election? I'm really concerned about climate. And candidate X is talking about climate and candidate Y is not. I keep meeting young people and asking those questions. Have you talked to your grandparents about how they're voting? and what matters to you. And they haven't. And so we need people to do that. And then the stuff we've talked about today is going and making basic political demands. Every parent in America who sends children off to school is almost every single one is putting that kid on a school bus that runs on diesel and spews dirty diesel fumes through the windows of the school bus and into the lungs of the kids. We have a rising problem with asthma in kids in this country. Why isn't every parent in America going down to the school board and asking, when are you going to switch to electric buses, which already exist? They're still a little expensive, but there are ways around that problem. You can lease the buses and cut the cost that way. So you are reading us right. I would say if your podcast is focused heavily on entrepreneurs, a lot of those people are actually, their businesses are going to fail. And the biggest reason they're going to fail is that we don't have the public policies right here. We don't have the prices. We don't have the rules and regulations right and we're not going to get it until the citizenry makes a demand. And there's a famous quote from Frederick Douglass, power never concedes anything without a demand. It never did and it never will. And, you know, what we're still missing here in this climate problem is, you know, we, we've, got a, we've got a movement now, but it's not big enough. We need more people. We need more of a political demand. We need more powerful voices going and making these arguments, if I'm making sense. Yes. We need more people and we need them to be better aimed. To. It really matters. There's a hundred ideas. There's a thousand ideas. I've heard them all on how to reduce carbon emissions. And some of them are silly and some of them are hallucinogenic and some of them involve perpetual motion machines. Everybody in the world nowadays is busy. We all have competing demands on our time and our headspace and public and the amount of time we can work on things. So choose something that matters. Choose something with some zeros behind it and figure out who makes the decision and go after them and use whatever ethical force you have, your kids, your health, economics, visibility, the future of the earth. Use those tools, those are real. They're not false claims, they're vivid and harmful, awful things that will happen to us if we don't deal with this. So choose well, understand the venue in which decisions are going to be made and use your limited time pointed like a laser at the problem and then the solution. And that's what the book is all about. One more thing that I have to say about the book, and this is a compliment to Justin. This is an eminently readable book. It's a page turner even. We've had a lot of reviewers who love it. It's told in stories. There's analytics in it for sure, because we're trying to get to the bottom of the matter. But it's told in stories of how people did what they did, how they managed to begin the transformation with all the tension and enlightenment that a great story has. Wow. Justin, Hal, and to the readers listening, I, I think what we've done here is give a couple clear examples around how specifically you can affect change. But I love that we only talked about a few because 
now there's cliffhangers, right? And the only thing that you can do by the time you hear this episode is pick up the big fix, seven practical steps to save our planet. Read it, right? Dive into the stories. I appreciate you both dearly for your time. Thank you for setting the standard and congrats on writing this book. I can't wait to read it. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Really appreciate the chance.